Hi, I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. And welcome to this special mini episode of the Barely Getting By podcast. Now, first things first, Emma has hustled me into the studio <laughs> today um, to answer some of her questions about the British general election, which is coming up next week on the 12th of December. But like I said, she's hustled me in and we actually have a very special guest in the studio who is baby Viv, Emma's two-week-old. Three, three weeks now. Three, yep, yep three-week-old daughter. So if you hear any gurgling in the background, um, don't mind us. It's not yeah. my stomach. It's the baby. Yeah, that's right. As baby Viv's disgust at the state of British politics, I think. <laughs> Okay, so so part of the motivation for for doing this podcast is obviously to hear from Chloe because she's an expert on British history and British politics. But it's also, I guess, kind of selfish from my point of view because I've sort of realised in the course of trying to understand what is happening, both with Brexit but kind of with British politics and, and politics across the Western world more broadly, that I actually don't really know anything about the British political system. I think it's much like, you know, when I talk about American politics, people kind of assume that the systems are, are, are pretty much the same, you know, and that I think is even more true of British politics because we've, of course, kind of inherited a version of that system. But I sort of realised, like, I didn't even know until I asked you directly how many seats are even in the House of Commons or how the House of Commons and the House of Lords work together or don't. So I guess my first question to you, Chloe, in terms of the British elections, coming up next week is is how do they actually work? Yeah. So, look, I've voted in British elections and I would say the biggest difference between voting in the UK and voting in Australia is that for all of its flaws, the Australian electoral system does every, does almost everything in its power to enable people to vote, whereas some of the rules and regulations around British elections throw barriers in the way of people who want who may want to go out and exercise their vote. So the first thing to mention is that voting isn't compulsory in the UK. So, you know, you do have huge fluctuations in voter turnout. Um, and even just the procedure of voting is way is much more onerous than it is here. So we're used to in Australia on election day being able to basically walk into any almost any polling station in the country and cast a vote. That's not the case in the UK. So if you're voting in, in Britain, before the election, you'll be issued with a voter card and that will specify the actual polling station that you have to go to, which will be somewhere, you know, quite close to your house in your in your constituency. You have to vote at that station. So you can't you can't just walk into any primary school? No, no. If okay. you're going to vote elsewhere or cast a, po- cast a postal vote or cast a vote by proxy, so get someone else to vote in your stead, you actually have to register for that well before the election. So I think the deadline to do that in this British election was the 26th of November. So there are all sorts of um, just just little barriers that yep. make it, I think, I think in practice, make it significantly more difficult to vote. Um, elections are generally held on a weekday which obviously causes an obstacle for, for people who are working. Um, and this election is quite special because it's a very rare winter election. Generally, yeah, I was going to ask you if, like, if Christmas plays a role, you know, people are going away and things like that. Well, so. exactly. So when during the debates about when this election would be held, there was some significant, I guess, negotiation coming from, especially from the Lib Dems and from Labor, who are very much reliant on students' votes, about whether the election would be held during term time for universities. And if that would impact turnout, because obviously a lot of students studying away from home, they might be registered to vote near their university as opposed to in their ho- in their home constituency. So 
all sorts of yeah, just wrinkles that appear in the process yeah, of getting okay. people out to vote. Okay, and are people people are voting for a local MP much the same way that we do here? Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And there are six hundred and fifty constituencies in the UK, so it's a much oh, right. bigger parliament. Um, so yeah, people are lo- voting for their local member. Okay, so, so six hundred and fifty. So a majority is three hundred plus. That my math yes. is that good. Yep, that's right. But generally, and especially in the last few years in the UK, there is minor parties are attracting many more votes, okay? So it's not... Whereas in an Australian election, you can generally expect the other major parties to be coming pretty close to 50% of that tally in the... Sorry, that um, tally in Parliament. It's less likely in the UK. So you're much more likely to have, say, a minority government situation where you're actually having to negotiate with minor parties to get to that 50% threshold. Okay. And is is that what... Um polling is suggesting will be the outcome? Well, so the polls are really mixed in the UK. And one of the big challenges in this election is that I think political pundits and, oh, excuse you, baby Viv, (laughs) um, political pundits and even polling and even polling companies are very gun shy of making making clear predictions. Yeah. But I would say that the general trend, and this has been consistent, is showing that there is probably a national majority of the vote share that's going to go to the Conservative Party, um, a minority going to the Labor Party, but that's been creeping upwards slowly. So poll-wise, we're really looking at one of two scenarios. We're either looking at a Tory majority government, so Boris Johnson, so the, the Tories winning over 325 yeah. seats, or Labor being in a position where they can put together a minority government with the aid of smaller parties. Okay, and and so who who are those smaller parties? Like we've obviously got Labor under Corbyn and then the Tories with Boris Johnson, but then who are the other? Yeah, so the other parties are the Liberal Democrats, who people will have heard a lot of a, a lot about as formerly partners in a coalition government with the Conservatives from 2010 to 2015. Yeah, with with Cameron. Yep, right? with, yep. with David Cameron. Um, we'll also hear a lot from the from the, Nash, the Scottish and Welsh Nationalist parties. So that would be the SNP, and I'm going to pronounce it correctly, Plaid Cymru, which is the Welsh Nationalist Party. And then there are also the Greens, who do have, I think at this stage, have one seat in Parliament and are looking to add to that total. Okay. And and out of those parties, who, who would the Labor Party be most likely to try and form a coalition with? I think it'd be relatively easy for them to make a deal with the Greens and also with Plaid. Um, the SNP... Labor's very careful not to not to make any promises with regard to the SNP because that's what undid them at the 2015 election. The Tories ran a really effective scare campaign saying that if Labor got into, co- into government, they would be doing so with the support of the SNP and that would mean that a Labor government would basically have the Scottish nationalists in their pocket and that would be they would then agitate for a second Scottish independence referendum. Remember there was yes, Scottish okay. independence a few years back? Yep. So Labor is very careful not to make any overt overtures to the SNP. But realistically, I think if they're going to put together a minority government, it will require their votes. Okay, I see. All right, so they're, they're the two most likely scenarios and that's that's kind of what polling is reflecting? Kind of, but I look, I'm taking every poll with a massive pinch of salt. Like, I am I have been known to, you know, I guess behave a little bit irrationally where, you know, I'm all doom and gloom when I see a poll coming out that says that the Tories are going to win a thumping yep. majority and then, you know, I'm jumping up and down with delight when I see <laughs> Corbyn clawing his way back in to back up the polls. So, yeah, I'm just I'm just going to refrain from any sort of judgment on yep. where the polls okay. are, what the polls are indicating. And is, is that because of the kind of assumptions that are underlying those polls yeah. that you don't trust? Yeah, and I think that's the big 
that's the big issue in British elections because so consistently consistently since 2015 the 2015 general election and then um with the the EU referendum in 20, in 2016 and then the general election in 2017 pollsters have been continuously wrong and that means that this time around they're trying to recalibrate their assumptions about voter behavior because you know a poll isn't just just going out to a bunch of voters and asking them who they're going to vote for. Those those results are then calibrated against what they assume about past voter behaviour. Okay. And so that, things like turnout and things like turnout. The big one that there's a big question mark this time around about whether polling companies are underestimating youth the youth vote yep. because okay. historically, young British British young people they don't go they don't turn out to vote, but. Again, they did turn up in 2017. We're seeing signs that there will be a similar, what they call a youth quake this time around. Um, the other day, <laughs> oh, Stormzy, Stormzy, the, the grime artist Stormzy endorsed oh, Corbyn. And okay. I think there was like, I think I've read there were like 150,000 additional registrations just off the back of that endorsement alone. So yeah, no one okay. quite knows what's going on with young people. Yeah. Like you just can't, yeah, there's no safe assumptions about voter behaviour in the UK right now. Okay, and I mean, that that sort of lines up with what I would say about, you know, when people ask me who's going to win the Democratic primary and they refer to polls, my response is those polls can't possibly reflect the reality because you're talking about, you know, tiny little seats and tiny little meetings of people that are really hard to predict. And I imagine with, you know, 650 seats, polling the result of each one of those is basically impossible. Yeah, that's it's really difficult. I think um, one of the best ways to think about this election is that, it's not necessarily going to be a national election for the whole of the UK. It's going to be 650 local contests that will be contested, you know, on on grounds of old party old party loyalties. There'll be nationalist agendas. There, of course, Brexit comes into it, yeah. so it becomes really difficult to put together a uniform picture of what's going on in the UK as a whole. Okay. And then there's first past the post. Yeah. So can you explain what that means to me? Because that, that's one of those phrases that gets thrown around all the time. And I think the assumption is people just understand what it means, but I, I legit do not. Yeah. Okay. So where we have preferential voting in Australia, so, so number one to so six, number one to yeah. six, and you know that your vote's going to end up somewhere based on those preferences. Yeah. The UK doesn't have that. There was actually a referendum on first past, um, sorry, on preferential voting. I think in two thousand and eleven, which didn't get up. Like, right. Okay. Yeah. It was. It was. I don't know. It seems illogical to my Australian democratic yeah. brain, but yeah, that didn't that didn't happen. Okay. So. The way first past the post works is the party in any given constituency election, the party that has the majority share of the votes will win that seat. So let's say, so whereas in Australia it's the party that first gets over fifty percent when you take into account um, when you take into account those preferences, a party could get in on forty percent or thirty percent or twenty percent right, as long okay. as it's the largest share. So you just have to have the most votes. Yeah, that's right. So what that means in practice is that. If I were, let's say I'm living in a in a constituency that is being tightly contested between the Liberal Democrats and the Tories, and I cast a vote for Labor, that doesn't mean anything, despite the fact that I would, you know, and this isn't hypothetical, this is true, I would have a clear preference for the Liberal Democrats. It just, Over it wouldn't Tories, mean yeah, anything. Okay. And, and then in the Australian system, that your vote would then get allocated to the Lib Dems. Yeah. But in the UK, it's just... Gone. Yeah, that's right. That's okay. right. So, which is why you'll see a lot of calls for tactical voting. So, people who where their loyalties might be with a party that's likely to come in third, 
in the actual okay. election, they might, they're being encouraged to tactically vote for their second preference. Okay, which again makes polling even more difficult. That's another yep. assumption that they're trying to Absolutely. deal Absolutely. And, okay. you know, and just the politicking of that. So, you know, making a good choice about where your vote should land is much more complicated in the UK than it is here. Yeah, of course. And it, I, I mean, I guess, of course, it's entirely dependent on what people see as their main issue, what, the, yes. what, what is going to change their vote. So I guess that's yeah. my next question. Like uh, Brexit is the is the obvious one, so maybe we can start with that. But but how are those, how are issues playing out in this election? Is it just about Brexit, or is there more to it? Well, I think this is very. It's this is something that has to be in the control of the parties, and this will, I guess, determining the nature of the election and what this election is about is what will probably see one party into government. So Labor has been very keen to pivot onto onto a domestic agenda and to focus very heavily on the NHS, which is a very strong place from it, from which it can campaign. Because so that's the, the National Health Service. Sorry, yes, yeah. the National Health Health Service. Um, a couple of weeks ago, people have probably heard about the leaked US and UK trade deal papers, which indicated very strongly that the US... in any, so, so there's been a lot of talk about um, a future trade deal between the yep. US and the UK after Brexit. Yep. Okay. It's going to save Britain's economy. It's going it? to save yeah. Britain's economy. And we we know that Donald Trump was insisting in the past that the, the, the NHS would be on the table, so it would be open to interventions from private American companies. Um, the Boris Johnson's government has insisted that that's not the case, that the NHS is basically sacrosanct. Um, these leaked documents did confirm that the US is insisting it's on the table. So, yeah, of course they are. Of course, the, of course, US trade insisting. negotiators yeah. are ruthless. Yeah, <laughs> and people have been keen to downplay it and say yeah. that you know, oh no, the Tories aren't. They've 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 assured us that they're not going to sell off the NHS. But there's a lot, there's a lot of behaviour in Tory government's past. They don't like the NHS. Yeah. It will be. I think I think it's quite realistic to assume that a Tory government in the future will put it on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't know that much about British politics, but knowing what I know about Conservatives and and American trade politics. Of course it will be. Like, yeah. The Americans will be super keen to get the, get Big Pharma in on that. Yeah, that's right. So if Labor can sow those seeds of mistrust in the in the Conservatives' plans for the NHS, yeah. then that will probably help bolster their vote. Okay, cool. Okay, so NHS is a big, big issue. NHS is a huge issue. Um, I did actually read that Donald Trump will be in London, I think, next week for the NATO summit. Really? So just before the election? Or? Yes, so the th- I think it's the 3rd and 4th of December. I'll have to double-check that. But he will be there and... and Nurses and doctors are planning on meeting him at the gates to Buckingham Palace with a protest about really? the NHS. So that the optics of that will be yeah. quite interesting because we know Donald Trump doesn't like doesn't like to be greeted with that kind of protest. It makes him very mad. Yes, um, and yeah. I imagine I imagine the Conservative Party is not going to be too happy about that because they they're trying to distance themselves from Trump. Yeah, well, as they as they should. <laughs> I would have thought it's not kind of electorally useful to be aligned with Donald Trump in Britain, but anyway, we'll see. Okay, so NHS is a big one, and that's tied to the trade deal, which is tied to Brexit. So mm-hmm. how how do you think Brexit's playing out in the election? Do you know Brexit's kind of it's kind of fade away? Like, so the Conservatives, their base, their entire manifesto, their entire policy platform is get Brexit done. But they're despite the fact that. They do have, you know, Boris Johnson's deal that he that he got through. He, well, he got through yep. with the EU before he called the election. So they do have a Brexit plan in place, but that's kind of gone quiet. So, okay. yeah, I think it has. It. The thing with Brexit is, I don't think none of the parties are talking specifically about their Brexit plans. Not in not at any great length. Like Labor has some promises, which I'll I'll get to in a minute, which have implications for what happens after this election, but. 
insofar as Brexit will play a role in the election, it is very much about the emotions of Brexit. So, you okay. know, that very, that's kind of very opaque um, demand to either get out of the EU or stay in. So it's kind of just rehashing the same, you know, binary divide that we've been playing with that's been going on okay. for the last three years. Okay, so that so not much has changed. Yeah, so it's not, it, Brexit, it, Brexit isn't de- being dealt with in a really complex way. Okay, so we've got the NHS and Brexit, but then there must be other issues that are playing out. Yeah, so one thing that has come up, sadly, in the last couple of days is the attack in London. So a, a man who stabbed several people near London Bridge, um, two of whom died, that's, as as to be expected, that is already being politicised. So Boris Johnson has come out and made some pretty, well, some extremely inflammatory claims around terrorism, which is, which is you know, all, I guess, kind of standard for a Tory government that's very keen to present itself as hardline on national security yeah, issues. Yeah, well, I mean, you can imagine the exact yeah. same thing happening here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In 2017, it was quite interesting because, so in the lead up to the 2017 election, we saw both the Manchester bombing and there was also there was another attack in London. And that was quite interesting because it presented it presented terrorism, which is an issue that's historically been, I guess, kind of... You know, it's been it's been dangerous for the Labor Party to address because they're not seen as strong on national security. But in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn was quite effective in using that as as the basis for an argument around police funding. So actually, bring it back to the domestic agenda that helped the Labor Party make huge inroads in the 2017 general election. Okay, so that. Um, connected to austerity. Yeah, so connected okay. to austerity. So saying, you know, we don't have... with police. The police are drastically underfunded, so they're yep. not actually able to effectively police potential terrorists, which is a line that's kind of emerging from Labor in the last few days. But what was really striking is that Corbyn has actually come out and explicitly linked terrorism to Iraq and wow. terrorism as the legacy of Iraq, which I think is... One, it's, it's quite audacious in the context of a general election, which is already quite risky for Labor, but it, I still think it's generally extraordinary for any Western politician to... I mean, Corbyn's views on Iraq have been well known for a long time, but to openly say that terrorism has been, you know, terrorism has been inspired yeah. and it is a direct result of of Western interventions in the Middle East. So he's outright saying those yeah. inter- interventions have made us less safe. Absolutely. Wow, yeah, which... yeah that is audacious. I think you're, you're, I mean, he's he's right, but to actually say it out loud is in that in the mainstream political context is, is something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then there's climate change. Is is he's playing a role? Is it... So climate change, the debate, the debate about the science of climate change is it's not as vexed okay. in the UK as it is here. We don't actually have rampant denialism. Um, it's more a question of degree, like degree rather than kind in terms of parties' okay. responses to it. But there was there was a big controversy a couple of weeks ago when Channel 4, which is one of the news broadcasters in the UK, held a climate change debate for the, for the party leaders. And both Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage refused to attend, Nigel Farage being the leader of the Brexit party. Okay. They refused to attend. Um, I think because Boris Johnson, he's being quite evasive. He's, like, generally avoiding any opportunity to debate his rivals directly. Um, But Channel 4 went ahead and they replaced both Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson on the podium with melting blocks of ice. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, as a symbol of, I guess, what, you know, what silence or inaction or a refusal to to talk about climate change means. Yeah. So that was – well, that – you say it's pretty cool, but it actually enraged the Conservative Party and they're actually now threatening Channel 4's licence. 
Right. Yeah, so they're, okay. they're broadcasting license. So there's a similar debate playing out about the kind of role of the media and media bias. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that's really been shown up in this election is how, I guess, the way that bias can work in quite a passive way without, mm-hmm. you know, without necessarily media outlets even realising that they're being biased. So have you heard anything about the BBC and the attacks on the BBC and its impartiality? Uh, yeah, a little bit's come across my, my Twitter timeline, mm. but, no, but not in depth. So... Yeah, so what's happened is the BBC, basically the Conservative Party have been playing the BBC for fools. So I think it was last week, Jeremy Corbyn, he agreed to go to be interviewed by Andrew Neil, who's very conservative, the editor of The Spectator, which is a right-wing magazine. Well, yeah, yeah, really right-wing. Yeah, so he, yeah. Was, so he agreed to be interviewed by Andrew Neil on the BBC. And it didn't go well for Corbyn, which... As you would expect, like yeah. he was, he was being interviewed by someone who's very antagonistic to him, and Corbyn didn't perform well under the circumstances. Okay. But this was he agreed to the interview on the assumption that Boris Johnson had also agreed to a similarly hard hitting interview with Andrew Neil, who is a hard hitting mm-hmm. journalist. After the interview with Corbyn aired, which didn't go well, Boris Johnson just turned around and said, "Oh no, I'm not going to do it." Wow. And yeah, yeah. So it, what, that's what I mean when I say the the Tories are kind of playing the BBC for idiots yep, okay. because um, in practice, Boris Johnson can just, he can just evade interview requests and he seems to be able to set that agenda. Okay. And um, I mean, I guess there's nothing the BBC can really do, but in the end that means they're sort of inadvertently going harder on Labor. Exactly. Yep. That's that's right. Inadvertently. I, yeah. There are, there are a lot. I Look, I think my personal opinion is that I think that there is a, there is a centrist bias in the BBC. So the BBC, its presenters and its producers, they do tend to, they're quite beholden to, you know, I guess the old, old-fashioned old centrism. They don't like yeah. politics at its extremes and that tends to reflect badly in the way that they treat Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, which has taken a distinctly left-wing turn in recent years. Okay, so again, it's, it's kind of similarities across the Western world in, in terms of how how those issues are playing out in yeah. the- excuse me, in electoral politics in terms of healthcare and global trade and terrorism and the role of the media and climate change, of course. Okay, so given given all of that, given the difficulties of polling, the, the assumptions that we're dealing with and the way that issues are kind of evolving day by day, I'm going to ask you the question anyway. You're <laughs> so you, mean. I know. <laughs> do do you have a prediction? Are you game to predict what might happen on the 12th of December? I'm not going to predict it. Like That's I said up. before, I think that the two the two most likely outcomes are either a conservative majority or a Labor minority government. I think that next Thursday, as the results come in, there are a couple of things to look for, which will give us some indications as to where that's where that's heading. And these are basically what we're looking for are the signs of the Tory majority of that of that eventuating. So the first thing I think people should be looking out for is what's happening in northern seats that be- currently belong to the Labor Party, but that had majority leave votes in the 2016 EU referendum. So for the Conservatives to get that majority, they're going to need to pick up some of those seats. Whether they actually hold for Labor may determine the, the overall outcome of the election. The second thing I think people need to look out for is the Lib Dems. So a lot of their appeal is to pro-Remain Tories in the south of England. Because they've and promised another referendum, haven't they? No, they've promised they want if 
and this will never happen because the Lib Dems will never win government, <laughs> they will revoke Article 50. Oh, right. Okay, just straight up. Straight cancel. up revoke. So they are the, they are the party of Remain. Okay. That is, that's their pitch to the electorate. So they're looking to pick up more seats. They have, I think, 20 seats in Parliament at the moment and they're looking to pick them up from the Conservatives in the, in the south of England. I think if they can do that, and this is one of those situations where first past the post becomes really important, so tactical voting from people who would normally vote Labor turning to the okay. Lib Dems, if they can win enough seats, then that might also deny the Tories the majority that they're seeking. I see. Okay. So so it depends on those kind of minor parties and what happens to the Conservatives in the north of England. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. Okay. Well, I think what we'll plan on doing is come back to you on Friday the 13th of yes. December. Yes. Oh, lucky. Yeah. That's kind of... Kind oh, of okay. um, yeah. <laughs> so we'll come back and I guess assess how Chloe's predictions have turned out. Taylor weren't predictions. No, they okay, just so no. Sorry. It's just the things to look out for. Okay. So we'll we'll see how those things are, are turning out in on Friday the 13th, which will also be probably the last episode of Barely yeah. Getting By for the year. I think it will. And I think the other thing to say is that one thing one thing will be very much clearer about next Friday is what's going to happen with Brexit. Yeah, okay, yeah. so we finally so we'll, have some, some... Some clarity fake. as to what... Some, <laughs> yep. Something like clarity as to yep. what's happening next in terms of Brexit. So we'll get to that next time, next time we're on the pod. Yeah, for sure. And I think we'll also, maybe if we've got time, sort of do some reflecting, especially on progressive politics and how... The kind, I guess, the rise of progressive politics across Western democracies is playing out, and how people are reacting to that. Well, the rise or the decline. Yeah, Let's see what well, happens we'll next see. week. Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay, we'll be back then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>